This is RCT 1, the Roman Catechism of Trent, Introduction, Part A. Hello, my name is Father David Nix. This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. So very excited to start the Roman Catechism of Trent on both the video series and the podcasts. Welcome to you if you finished the CPX series. Welcome to you if you are new on this podcast. Today we're going to look at the why, why the Roman Catechism of Trent is the only infallible catechism in the Catholic Church and why I'm doing a video series on it. Then in RCT 2, which is Introduction Part B, we will look at the what and the who and the why of the Catechism of the 16th century that still holds pride of place as the highest catechism ever produced by the Catholic Church, which I will prove a little bit later today in RCT 1, Introduction Part A. Before I jump into the Roman Catechism of Trent, I want to start with an unlikely diversion. I want to ask a bit of a question, a question to you all. What do you think of that line, there but for the grace of God go I? You know, Catholics might see a homeless person or a drug dealer on the street and say, there but for the grace of God go I. And what they're saying is, if it weren't for God's grace, I might be homeless or I might be a drug dealer. It sounds really humble, but the problem with saying it is, it's like, well, are you saying that homeless person doesn't have God's grace? I mean, think about it. St. Joseph was homeless for a while, and well, he was off the charts on God's grace. And so that phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, my other problem is it sounds a little bit like that parable Christ himself tells us not to be like, namely that Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. That's Luke 18.11. But on the other side of the coin, here's where I'm okay with that phrase, as long as you cushion it with a real understanding of what it means. There, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, last month, I'm making this video, RCT1, in July of 20, 2022. And on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, the last Friday of June 2022, so just a couple weeks ago, here in this country, Roe versus Wade was overturned. And then that gives the um, decision, quote-unquote, of course, there can be no decision on an unjust law, but the, quote-unquote, decision to abort to the states. And what we saw in this country, I know there's people listening from other parts of the world, but what we saw in this country is all these videos on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook of people screaming for abortion rights. The pro-aborts were screaming for abortion rights, wanting abortion rights. And if you looked in their eyes, I know this is overused to say about your enemies, but they really look possessed. Uh, they were screaming so many evil things that I couldn't help but come to the conclusion these people were possessed. I'm sure many of you saw those clips. I'm not even going to splice them into this video because they're really that ugly, maybe even scary, to see the rage, the sputtering rage of these possessed people screaming that they wanted to continue with Roe versus Wade. And... I was talking to a friend on the phone about this, and I said, you know, if Christ hadn't come, we would all be like that. It's not just that like some of us read the right book, or some of us have turned off CNN and watched Tucker Carlson. We really have to realize, if Christ had not come to earth, every one of us would be sputtering, mad, possessed, insane. I'm really coming to very Augustinian conclusions on original sin these days, to to really see that that phrase there, but for the grace of God go I, is global. That's not just a little personal judgment of other people. We really can look around and say, 
um, I would be toast on earth and sitting on a hot rock in hell forever if Christ hadn't come. And of course, that's still a possibility for me. Any of us who are still breathing, um, we are being saved. We have been saved and we hope to be saved. But you have to realize that as we talk about Jesus saving us, it's not just enough to say, picture a Middle Eastern man named Jesus with warm emotions. And because I like this man who is smiling at me, who looks like a Middle Eastern man 2,000 years ago, who I call Jesus in my imagination, that's enough to call me saved. No, Christ himself said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who's going to be saved? It's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, says Christ in Matthew 7.21. So what does this have to do with a catechism? Well, the catechism is to tell you how to do the will of the Father. This is why this series is about salvation. As I look at all these rage-filled, sputtering, mad people on the streets screaming for abortion rights, I really realized if Christ hadn't come, and if I wasn't trying to do his will, I would really be like that. I'm not saying that out of false humility. You really have to realize that would be every one of us without Christ. But that's not just an emotional relationship. We actually have to do his will. How do we know his will? Well, the Bible first. Now, a lot of you have heard me say that the Bible is the highest point of written divine revelation, even in the Catholic Church. It's higher than St. Thomas Aquinas. It's higher than the councils of the church. Um, but then, obviously, to come back to that would be, then why isn't the Bible enough to read to know Christ's teaching? Well, the answer to that is there's many reasons, but the first reason is because the Bible says so. So let's look at a few of these. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so what is that all, that all that I have commanded you? Where is it found? Well, here's how the Apostle Paul answers that. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So right there, letter refers to sacred scripture because it's Paul writing it. But then he also says by our spoken word. And notice there's that word or between those. So we know the will of God, according to St. Paul, who's Protestants' favorites, by the way, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So there's a delineation. It doesn't mean there's any contradiction in there, but he, he includes both. And this shows that the Bible is not enough to understand Christ's doctrine, even if it's in seminal form completely in the Bible in the first place. So listen now to the very last line of the Gospels. This is the last line of John's Gospel, so it's the last line of all the Gospels. And St. John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so this isn't just for the sake of study. We wouldn't have all these books on what Christ taught if it was just for the sake of contemplation and study. Even though contemplation is higher than doing, it's still a matter of salvation. How do we know this? Matthew 19, there's the young man that comes up to Christ and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then Christ says to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. 
if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So right there, anybody that says it's enough to accept Jesus as your Savior to be saved, no, Jesus just told you right there to enter into eternal life. You have to keep his commandments. Well, today there's a lot of confusion, not just interdenominationally, but even within the Catholic Church. What does the Catholic Church really require for salvation? And some of you have heard me quote this book before. This is Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. And he has six theological grades of certainty. It would take me a few minutes, three, four, five minutes to read the whole thing. I'm not going to do that because I've read it on past podcasts. But I'm going to give you the basics of the six levels of the theological grades of certainty. The first is De Fide Definita. De Fide Definita, Ott says, this is the highest degree of certainty and it appertains to the immediately revealed truths. The second is Fides Ecclesiastica. That means faith of the church. Ott says these are Catholic truths or church doctrines on which the infallible teaching authority of the church has finally decided. So notice De Fide and Fides Ecclesiastica are both at the level of infallible. Then we get to level three. This is Sententia Fide Proxima, and this is the level where theologians generally, as a truth of revelation, hold this to be doctrine, but it has not yet been finally promulgated as such by the church. The fourth level is Sententia Ad Fidem Pertinens. This is, concerned, this is also considered theologically certain, that is, a doctrine on which the teaching authority of the church has not yet finally pronounced, but whose truth is guaranteed by its intrinsic connection with the doctrine of revelation. So it's guaranteed. In other words, even at level four, we are still talking about infallible truths because it's linked to what's in the Bible, what's in the magisterium, what's in the church fathers. We're going to talk about that later, what actually constitutes infallible. But notice the first four of the six levels of theological certainty is still at the level of infallible. Do you notice how different this is from what we hear from a lot of Catholics today? They say ridiculous things like, well, the only thing, two things you have to believe as a Catholic is the two ex-Catholic statements of the two popes of the past 150, 200 years. That's totally different from what every pope uh, for almost 2,000 years taught. Finally, we have level five. This is the common teaching in Latin that is sententia communis, and this is that which is accepted by theologians generally. That which is accepted by theologians generally. And then at level six, we have sententia probabilis. You can probably hear the English in there, probable sense. And this is those items of teaching which are regarded as being in agreement with the con consciousness of faith of the church. And then it goes into what's called pious opinions, sententia pia. And then the last degree is opinio tolerata. These are just the opinions that were barely tolerated. But we're talking about 100 years ago, things that were barely tolerated. We're not talking about the insane debates that theologians are having today. So as you think about those six levels that just came from Ludwig Ott's book and how the first four are infallible, I'm going to explain to you a little bit later why everything, literally everything, in the Roman Catechism of Trent is infallible. But first, why am I calling this one RCT? Well, you know, in all honesty, I wanted another three-letter abbreviation that ends in X, like my last name, Nix, you know, like CPX and VLX. But what I was looking at had weird outcomes, the way I sliced it and diced it to end in X on YouTube. Whereas RCT, really, if you Google like Padre Peregrino RCT, 
the only thing that's going to be competitive is root canal treatments. So we're pretty safe on that, not going to pull up weird stuff. Hopefully this is a lot more enjoyable than the other RCT. But now let's get to this big question, what is infallible? You know, this is a question I see debated on Catholic social media. What do I have to believe? What is infallible? Is the new catechism infallible? And at first I thought, wow, this is sad. This is Catholic minimalism. People only want to know the minimum it takes to love Christ. But then I started looking a little bit deeper at it, and I thought, you know what? Maybe this isn't minimalism for everybody. Perhaps it's more this. In these times of tremendous theological confusion, I think there are really good people out there, really good Catholics out there, and even non-Catholics looking at Catholic teaching. And here's the question they want to ask. They want to say, with all the confusion in the Catholic Church, what's the difference between theological opinion and theological fact? What's the difference between theological opinion and theological fact? Who gets to decide where that dividing line is? Well, the answer came from Pope Clement VIII, and he said that the Roman Catechism of Trent contains, quote, listen to this quote, this is really, really important, quote, that teaching which is the common doctrine of the church from which all danger of doctrinal error is absent, end quote. Never has a pope ever said any other catechism can be guaranteed to be free from error. That's why this is the series to do. That's why Roman Catechism of Trent is the only infallible catechism out there. We're going to talk about CPX and even the 1992 CCC that came under Pope John Paul II in just a minute, but you will not find any quote close to what we hear. And by the way, the Council of Trent, at least every anathema seat statement was also infallible in Trent. But Pope Clement VIII, again, he said that the Roman Catechism, that's what we're going to be studying for the next couple of years here, contains, quote, that teaching which is the common doctrine of the church from which all danger of doctrinal error is absent, end quote. Okay, so what is infallible? Well, there's five things in the church that are infallible. First is scripture. Second is doctrinal points on unanimous consensus from the church fathers, councils, creeds, and ex cathedra statements. Scripture, fathers, councils, creeds, and ex cathedra statements. Let's just look a little bit at that how these are the five infallible things of the church. Now, scripture, this is also called inerrant. Probably it's transliterated a little bit weird into English because the dartboard analogy that I would give to explain this after reading about the difference or the levels between infallible and inerrant is this, that infallible means if you are throwing, this is just my analogy, if you're throwing a dart on the dartboard, you're guaranteed because of the protection of these five things, scripture, fathers, councils, creeds, and ex cathedra statements, you're guaranteed it's always going to land on the dartboard. The difference with scripture is not only is it going to land on the dartboard, every sentence of scripture is not just going to land on the dartboard, every sentence is a bullseye. Every sentence is exactly as God wanted it to be. And so that's why, again, scripture is the highest level of written divine revelation that we have in the church. But there's no competition with the other four. So the second is the unanimous consensus of the church fathers. Uh, Vatican I says that infallibly. If you want to go read the documents of Vatican I, I think I included that on a VLX series, but we won't quote Vatican I here. The councils. Now, the councils is when the Pope and all the bishops get together and they hammer out the truth and flush away the heresies of the time. And notice that the councils that are considered infallible are dogmatic councils, not pastoral councils. So what would a dogmatic council be? Well, that would be like Chalcedon 
or Florence or Trent. What's a pastoral council? Well, we've only had one, and it's Vatican II, and it doesn't even claim to be infallible. So this isn't my teaching or my, my interpretation. Vatican, both Pope John XXIII and Pope Pius VI both said um, doctrinal statements. I'll have to find the quotes later for you, but they both make it very clear this is not a dogmatic council of anathema seat statements, and then therefore we can extrapolate from that um, this was not an infallible council. Um, and then creeds. We don't have to go into those. Most of you know what a creed is. And then the fifth is ex cathedra statements. There's only been two, the Immaculate Conception and Assumption. But keep in mind, Christians uh, from pretty much all of time had already believed that. That just crystallized what Christians had always believed. The Immaculate Conception and Assumption, ex cathedra statements of the past 200 years. So those five things are considered infallible. Scripture, fathers, councils, creeds, and ex cathedra statements. And when I say fathers, I mean doctrinal points of unanimous consensus from the church fathers. So you might have noticed in there that just every opinion of a pope is not considered infallible. You may have noticed that catechisms weren't even in that list. Many people think the catechism of the Catholic Church, CCC, that came out in 1992 is infallible. It's not. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, someone told me a while ago there was a pope, I think in the 19th century, who didn't like suspension bridges. He thought they were bad. Well, that is not a matter of articulated faith and morals. So not only is it not ex cathedra, it's not even a matter of the magisterium. So, you know, personal opinions of popes does not go under the title of infallibility. So notice in those five things I gave you, popes and catechisms are not listed. Okay, but then the easy comeback to the very last sentence I said would be, well, then why did you just quote a pope on a catechism saying that teaching, which is the common doctrine, of the church from which all danger of doctrinal error is absent, namely Clement VIII's application to the RCT, why would you quote a pope on a catechism? Well, the answer is, is pretty simple. The reply to that objection is that popes were expected to hand down those five things, not invent new doctrines or liturgies. And when there's a rub between the two, when there's a rub between those five infallible things and a personal opinion of a pope, well, guess what? We know as Catholics, those five things are infallible. Because again, only those things considered infallible from popes in the extraordinary magisterium, like ex cathedra statements, are considered infallible. And when they hand down tradition, and both of those were always believed, the ordinary and extraordinary magisterium, even though there's been different, you know, like shifting around of the definitions or what gets conglomerated into each one, the ordinary magisterium is simply passing on those five infallible things, sacred scripture, or four things, sacred scripture, fathers, councils, and creeds. It's real basic stuff. And the only way we can really understand this is when we look at the third secret of Fatima, there's a lot of evidence. You can go watch this on YouTube. It's called The Secret Still Silenced. It's the closest proof I've seen that God, through Mary, warned the Catholic Church that there would be a great apostasy from the top down. You have to remember an apostasy is worse than heresy. That means if the third secret was really not just a pope being shot, but a great apostasy from the top down, that would mean a great percentage, if not the majority of the entire hierarchy, would turn their back on God. And you know, I tried for a long time to reconcile new doctrine with old doctrine, but the death penalty is just the clearest example of why that's now impossible. God cannot change his mind, therefore the church cannot change her teaching. 
Did God will this confusion? Did he will a new doctrine and an old doctrine? Of course not. But for some reason, his permissive will allowed modernism to spread through the church like a cancer to infiltrate the hierarchy to the point that, again, that third secret of Fatima shows there truly has been an apostasy from the top down. That, or those 250 popes and the Bible, is totally wrong about the death penalty and almost everything else. So if you care what the church taught from like 33 AD to 1950, this is your series. Um, and as you've probably noticed, Vatican II didn't officially change the teaching on the death penalty or all these other other issues, but it softly enshrined them. Um, modernism was enshrined at Vatican II. So is it a little bit controversial that this series is going to put RCT ahead of the CCC as far as infallibility? Yeah. But guess what? There's a lot at stake. I'm interested in souls more than popularity. And if accepting modernism means joining the apostasy of the hierarchy away from God, away from apostolic Catholicism, away from primitive Christianity, count me out. Rejecting modernism, as I've said before, that doesn't mean we have to live in a weird traditional time warp and act like how we think people in the 1950s would have acted. It just means being Catholic through and through as the church has always believed and always worshipped. I think this series will help a lot with that. Join us for RCT 2, that is Introduction Part B, to hear a short history of the Roman Catechism of Trent. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio deum nepotentis, patris et fidi, et spiritus santi, descendet super vos, et maniat semper. Amen. <laughs>